BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we explore how you can learn from dating mistakes to make better financial choices, the most expensive words in investing and how you can avoid them, why highly qualified experts are wrong more than 94% of the time, the importance of focusing on process instead of outcome, and much more with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Because the science of success has spread across the globe with more than 550,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more, I give away something awesome to my listeners every single month. This month, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card to one lucky listener. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222. For international listeners, go to our website, scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and join our email list. And if you want to get 10, yes, 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a positive review on iTunes and email me a screenshot of that review to matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. In our previous episode, we discussed the secret lessons hostage negotiators around the world use to win the day, how to understand and influence people's emotional drivers, the two words that can transform any negotiation, the biggest hallmarks of powerful master negotiators, and much more with the FBI's former lead international kidnapping negotiator, Chris Voss. If you want to learn how to negotiate and influence people, 
Listen to this episode. It's an incredible interview. He's a fascinating guy. Highly recommend checking it out. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. Daniel Crosby. He's a psychologist and behavioral finance expert, as well as the author of the New York Times bestseller, Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management, as well as The Laws of Wealth, Psychology, and the Secrets to Investing Success. He was named one of the 12 thinkers to watch by Monster.com, a financial blogger you should be reading by the AARP, and listed on the top 40 under 40 by InvestmentNews.com. Daniel, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your background and your story? Yeah, so I have I have sort of a varied background. I went to school initially to be an investment manager. After a year of school, left to go on a mission for my church. So I spent two years in the Philippines, came back with, I think, a bigger a bigger heart than I left with and decided I wanted to go into a helping profession. So chose psychology um, about two or three years into a PhD program in psychology, it was getting a little too heavy for me. I was taking work home with me. It was bumming me out, <laughs> talking to sad people all day. And so I said, you know, I love thinking deeply about why people do the things they do, but I think I need to look for a business application of behavioral principles. And so long story short, I've I've landed in the sort of this middle ground of behavioral finance, which is a blend of of psychology and decision making and, and finance. That's fascinating. So for listeners who have kind of never heard that term behavioral finance, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so behavioral finance is really just trying to integrate the messiness and the irrationality of human decision making into the financial planning and investment management process. Um, it's sort of hard to believe, I think, for people who come from the outside. But uh, uh, for years and years, hundreds of years, economic models were, were built on this idea of rational man. So built upon this mistaken notion that people are thoughtful and prudent with their money, which I think we can all point to instances in our own lives when that hasn't been the case. And so behavioral finance studies, basically the mistakes and the fears and the heuristics that drive decision making and, and tries to incorporate them in and help people make better decisions. And then on the flip side, um, some of what I do is how do you make better investment decisions? How do you pick better stocks? by taking the other side of trades where people are being greedy or fearful. So there's a, there's a lot to it. But basically, it's about integrating humanity back into finance. I think that's so important. And something that we talk about a lot on the science of success is the idea that many fields, and I think e economics, finance, etc., were definitely guilty of this, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, really don't incorporate the actual reality of human psychology into their evaluation of human behavior. Yeah, that, that's so true. And I mean, really, this was done, frankly, not because anyone believed it per se, because I, like I said, I think it's fairly simple to think of, uh, of reasons why you could contradict a, a rational man type theory. But really, I think it was it was done this way to build elegant, beautiful mathematical models. So I mean, your math, your math gets a lot harder you know, the algorithms don't get as as elegant when you have to plug Joe Sixpack into the equation. And so uh, it's not it's not quite as pretty, but it's maybe a little more realistic. So you have a TED talk where you talk about the concept of understanding money and how people think about money through the lens of love. Can you share that yes. idea or kind of explain that? Yeah. So, well, 
I find it to be sort of my life's mission to make these things more accessible, some of these uh, these notions more accessible, because I've done, I'll be honest, basically none of the primary research on the things that I write about. Um, it's been done by people far smarter than me, typically in academic settings. But what I what I have done is I've taken these ivory tower concepts and have broken them down in in a more simplified way that people can understand because I'm from Alabama and that's what we do in Alabama we make things as as simple as possible. And so yeah, I've done I've done three TED Talks um and one of them was called Sex Funds and Rock and Roll and it's in that TED Talk I I compare romantic love sort of the irrationality of romantic love to the way that you invest or make decisions around your money talk about everything from the irrationality of playing the lottery all the way down to things like the way that emotion colors risk perception. You know, when you're in love, uh, when you're in love with someone, you don't, the reason we we have a 50% divorce rate or whatever is when you're in love, you're not very critical. You're not a very good assessor of risk when you're in love because our emotional states tend to dictate how much risk we do or don't see in our environment. And so if we're feeling great, the world looks great and we don't tend to see much risk in the world around us. And so uh, in investing and in love, maybe we need to be a little more critical and a little more even headed, but it's it's certainly easier said than done, especially in, in romantic love. And you shared a couple different biases in that talk. One of them was the, as you called it, the fixer upper bias, which is the idea that if you're dating somebody that you can change or transform them and how that applies to people's personal finances as well. Yeah. So the fixed sort of the analog, I mean, I think we're all familiar with the, with the love part of that equation. You know, we've all probably had the experience of dating someone with an eye to changing them or hoping that they would become more the person that we need them to be. The way that that plays out in our investment lives is that we tend to overinvest in things that are proximal to us. So this, this takes a couple of, of, of turns, right? One is called home bias where we find that people dramatically overinvest in stocks of their own country. And it's actually less of a problem in the U.S. than elsewhere, just for the simple fact, not that we do it any less, but just the U.S. is a bigger part of the world economy than, say, Greece. But like someone like uh, people in Greece tend to invest in Greek companies, which is only a very, very small part of the world economy. Likewise, people in the U.S. tend to be overweight the U.S. economy, which accounts for about half of of the stocks, half of the market capitalization of stocks globally. So um, we, we tend to think things that are closer to home are safer, and that's not always the case. The other way that this applies is that we think that if we work for a company, uh, we can single-handedly make it better. So I spoke with someone recently who had $5 million in one stock. All of their money, you know, $5 million was all the money they had, and it's a great deal of money, uh, but they had all of that $5 million in one stock because that was the large publicly traded company they worked for. And his thought was, why would I spread it around? Why would I diversify where here I can put it in the company where I work directly? Well, of course, the irrationality there is you're one person, you know, you're the 372nd accountant in this large multinational corporation, you can't move the needle all that much. But just like a bad romantic partner, we think that because we're involved, things will get better by virtue of our involvement alone. And that's not the case. Another bias you touched on, and uh, 
I found this one really fascinating was the idea of this time it's different, or I think another term for it might be the concept of new era thinking. Yeah. So this time is different. Those, those words have been called the most expensive words in investing. So this time is different with respect to uh, romantic love. I talk about uh, Elizabeth Taylor, who was married, I don't know, I can't remember, four, four or five times at least. And the thought there is that, well, yeah, those, those past guys were bad, uh, you know, for X, Y, Z reason, but this time it's different. And we're, we're always just sort of plunging forward, never taking the time to look back and see what happened. So we see this type of new era thinking and investing as well. And every major bubble and crash has had this, this sort of new era thinking. You know, if you go back to the turn of the century when we had the dot-com bubble, I think the sort of new era thinking of the day was that traditional metrics like price to earnings and even sales and profitability didn't matter because we were in this brave new world where things like eyeball share and clicks and things mattered in this sort of new economy. And the thing that's so tricky about new era thinking is that a lot of times it's characterized by half-truths, because as we know, the internet was indeed a big deal. I mean, it did, it did revolutionize life and business in ways that I think we probably couldn't have even imagined 15 or 20 years ago. But what isn't the truth is that traditional metrics like earnings and profitability and things would be out the window, right? So a lot of the danger of bubbles and, and bad economic decision making is that there are half truths. And if you go back in history, you go back to Amsterdam, you know, hundreds of years ago, there was a point in Dutch history where a single tulip bulb uh, was trading for as much as a townhome. And that's because they were engaged in this new era thinking that says, hey, we have this scarce commodity. People will never be sick of tulips. They're going to appreciate forever. And we're going to be a very wealthy country. So we have to check ourselves and say, look, there are certain laws of the universe. And these things tend to come back down to earth. And this time may not be so different after all. So in the context of the current financial markets, where do you think that kind of framework applies? I think uh, we're in a dangerous position right now, I think, because we've got two things going on. You know, for a lot of people, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm in my mid-30s, I get it creeping towards late 30s, but uh, in my mid-30s. And, uh, you know, some of my first experiences of investing were, were bad. I mean, some of my first experiences as an investor, you know, having a job, and having enough money to put a little aside, and then it's you're talking 2008, 2009. So there's that primacy and recency effect, right? So the I have a, an early memory of of a very bad time, and I think no matter what people's age, people still are a little gun shy from such a dramatic come down. You know what is it now? Seven or eight years ago now. But then I think we have the recent past, which is seven years of extremely good returns very little volatility over the last seven years. So people are simultaneously scared because of what happened seven or eight years ago and spoiled because of seven or eight uh, years past of, of really nice returns with very little volatility by historic standards. So I think we're ripe to be frightened and make really poor decisions the next time the market takes a dip. And I mean, it, it will. You know, it will. This is already one of the longest bull markets of all time. And it's really a matter of when and not if. And so people need to prepare themselves a bit for the inevitability of that. 
So tell me the story of uh, one of your first consultations as a psychologist. You had a grad student who was an, or wanted to become an epidemiologist. And how do we create kind of self-fulfilling prophecies that can sort of create negative outcomes in our lives? Yeah, so my first, my very first ever client, so my, my PhD is in clinical psychology, even though I work in a very different field now. And, you know, I had to get thousands of hours of face-to-face -face consultations, uh, clinical hours with clients. And so my very, very first client uh, was a, a beautiful college student, very bright, very talented, and very intimidating to me as a, as a brand new therapist. So she walks into my room and she brings with her six envelopes and says to me, look, here's the story. I, you know, I go, well, well hey, what, what have you got there? And she says, here's the story. I've wanted to be an epidemiologist all my life. I've always wanted to go get a PhD in this. I've brought you these six envelopes uh, because these are the six programs I've applied to to get into a PhD program. They've all written back to me, and I cannot bring myself to open these, these letters because of its bad news. I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be just heartbroken um, by this bad news because this is what I've wanted since I was, well, was very young. And so very inelegantly and in, inarticulately, I'm sure, we sort of worked around uh, over the course of the next session or two to the point where I helped her try and understand that oftentimes in life, in our very efforts to manage risk and make ourselves safe, we bring about the certainty of the very thing we're trying to avoid. So in her efforts to spare her feelings and avoid potential bad news, you know, she was running up against a deadline. You, of course, have to respond to these schools and tell them if you're coming or not. You know, she was running up against a deadline that was going to, to lead her into a, a certainty of a bad situation. And as a clinician and as a financial advisor, I see that again and again. I mean, I very, very commonly saw People who had been hurt in romantic relations say, well, I'm never going to love again, because if I never love again, that's how I keep from being lonely, right? And it's, of course, very paradoxical, because in the act of trying to avoid heartache and loneliness, you, you know, the possibility of heartache and loneliness, you bring about the certainty of those very things. And I see the same thing in financial markets. People fail to invest. They fail to take the ride and endure the volatility because they're scared of losing money. And it's, it's very scary. And we all work very hard for our money, and it is scary. But in their failure to do that, they bring about the certainty that they're not going to be able to retire. We're losing 3% a year. You're losing 3% a year on your money if you're not invested just because of inflation. And so in love and in finance, I think people try and manage risk too closely and in their efforts to do so, bring about uh, negative realities that could have been avoided altogether. So how can we sort of let go a little bit and, and, and not manage those risks so closely? You know, I, I, in The Laws of Wealth, my new book, I, I talk about a couple of ways, I think, in the first couple of chapters. I think one thing that people can learn is that uh, the, the title of chapter one is You Control What Matters Most. And I think that's an empowering message that's little understood by, by the average investor. Just a couple of stats on that. Uh, a recent study by a big asset manager, they, they surveyed financial advisors and then they surveyed their clients. Okay, So of the financial advisors, 83% of them 
thought that the best thing that they could do for their clients was manage their behavior, help them manage their emotions, and make good decisions. Okay? Not picking stocks, not managing taxes, not doing any of this. You know, managing behavior and decision making was what financial professionals perceive to be the number one value add. And the research, without getting too boring, the research backs that up. But then they turn around and ask the clients of these financial advisors, you know, is it important to you to get help around behavior and decision making from your advisor? And only 6% said yes. And so the average investor over the past 30 years, the market's given us about eight and a quarter percent a year over the last 30 years. And the average investor has only kept 4% of that because they've entered and exited the market uh, at exactly the wrong times. You know, they've, they've bought in when things were expensive. They've jumped out when things were cheap and scary, sort of rinse and repeat. And so I think if people better understood that, hey, I have more control over this process just by virtue of doing a couple of boring things like putting aside money every month, staying the course, you know, being calm and collected. I think if the average person thinks it's in the hands of Janet Yellen or Warren Buffett or the European central banks or just some far flung, uh, exotic, hard to understand entity, if people understood that they're in more control than they think, I think that'd be a positive first step toward them taking back control of their financial lives. So when you say that they have more control than they realize, is that kind of a focus on the process of investing itself instead of the outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. I talk I talk a lot about process versus outcomes in the book. And there's this there's this great story that I share in the book by a guy who used to work in the L.A. Dodgers front office, a guy named Paul D. Podesta. He was featured in Moneyball. So he talks about going out with a friend who had had too much to drink and they're playing blackjack one night and his friend has drunk and he has a 19 and his friend wants to hit, you know, his friend wants another card. And so Dee Podesta's like, man, you cannot, you cannot hit, you know, you're sitting on 19, uh, you can't hit, don't do it, stay put. Uh, and so the friend says, you know, get lost, uh, I'm doing it, I'm going in. So he hits and he gets a two. And so the friend is ecstatic, he's jumping up and down because he, you know, he wins a big hand and he says to Dee Podesta, like, see, you know, you're an idiot. And Dee Podesta makes the point in his article, uh, you can have a good outcome and still be a moron. And that's what I'm trying to help people guard against in the book. You know, I give 10 commandments of investor behavior in the laws of wealth to just say, look, if you manage the process, if you control the controllable, things are going to come out in your favor over time. And the thing about the market is it is uncertain. It's unpredictable in the short term. But people who are process oriented and have a behaviorally sound process win out over long terms. So yeah, a lot of people get in trouble in the market because they have early success for the wrong reasons, you know, just getting lucky. And they sort of end up chalking that up to skill. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hiring the right person takes time. 
time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And being process-oriented is something that I'm a huge fan of. And, and we've actually talked about in previous podcast episodes, we had an interview with an amazing, insightful guest, Michael Malbison, who's a, another person actually in the financial world about how you can really be process-focused. So for listeners who are interested, I would definitely recommend checking that episode out. One of the 10 commandments that, that really jumped out at me, I thought was really interesting, was the commandment, you are not special. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it, it really goes to being process oriented because I think a lot of people who, who get into investment management or even retail investors think they have some sort of special edge. And, you know, you go, you hearken back to the gentleman I mentioned earlier with the $5 million, like his special edge in his mind was he had some control over this. You know, I know people who work in tech, who invest heavily in tech because they say, hey, you know, this is my world. I understand it. And being a great investor is about driving out this idea that you have special knowledge or that the rules don't apply to you. Because I again and again meet people who understand the rules of investing. I mean, simple things like diversification, staying the course, dollar cost averaging, which means, you know, putting a little money in each month or each year. And they just fail to do it because they think that they're somehow different. And this is a very human tendency to be overconfident. And in fact, the research shows that you're basically either overconfident or you're depressed. There's not a whole lot of middle ground, unfortunately. So most of us, uh, aside from the sort of clinically sad, have a great deal of overconfidence. And, you know, I, I cite research in the book that talks about uh, 94% of men thinking they're better looking than average and 100% of men thinking they're more interpersonally savvy than average. And, you know, most of us have a have a vested interest from an ego and self-esteem standpoint of thinking that we're better than average. But bringing that human tendency to the world of investing is very dangerous. I talk in the book, too, about our tendency to delegate the dangerous and own the optimistic you know, delegate the dangerous, own the optimistic. When we're asked to rate other people's likelihood of getting cancer or getting divorce or, you know, losing money in the stock market, we can do a very good job. But when we, when it comes to rating our own likelihood of getting cancer, or getting divorced, whatever, the numbers get very, very skewed. 
because we don't see ourselves as clearly as we ought to. And so this is why I think that working with a financial advisor, getting a second opinion, having a partner to check your thinking, I think that's the reason that all of these things are so important in the world of finance. It reminds me of that famous study about drivers, right? It's the same thing that the majority of drivers think that they're above average. Absolutely. And and it also makes me think of, you know, something I previously used to work on Wall Street. And uh, one of the things that I always think when, when somebody tells me that, you know, they think they can beat the market or whatever is there's, you know, do you really think that you can beat these hedge funds that have billions of dollars invested in algorithms and, you know, data farms of computers that are micro timing all these trades? There's almost no way that you're ever going to actually generate meaningful alpha as a result of, you know, kind of your what you think is a novel insight that you just saw on CNBC about some company. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a zero-sum game. And so if, if hedge funds are winning, someone else is losing by a comparable margin, and the, the odds are it's you, right? I mean, <laughs> there's the old saying about, you know, if you get in a card game a few minutes in and you don't know who the sucker is, it's you, right? And I think that uh, the same can be said of investing. So you touched on this briefly, but how do we combat that bias or how can we help kind of mitigate some of that overconfidence? I think the one of the most important ways, one of the things that I advocate for in the book a whole lot is just being rules based. I mean, the book is really I mean, it's called The Laws of Wealth and it really is a book of rules. And so there's fascinating research in the book, and I'll, I'll just give the whole book away, I guess, at this point, <laughs> because one of the things that we talk about in the book is how often expert discretion is beaten or matched by just simple rules. And uh, one of the studies that I talk about in the book is actually a meta-analysis. So it's a study of all the studies. It's like a study of over 200 studies on simple rules-based decision-making versus human discretion. So like you making your own choice. And it studies everything from, you know, studies about prison recidivism and parole to stock picking to making a medical diagnosis And it found that simple rules beat or match expert like PhD level discretion 94% of the time. And so following the rules is such a big deal. And so what I've tried to do in the book is set forth rules for managing money and managing your behavior and just try to put that on autopilot to the extent possible. You know, I like reading about really successful people and one of the one of the hallmarks of, of really successful people is that they try and automate their day and free up cognitive room for, for thinking about more important stuff. You know, uh, there's, there's been a lot of talk about President Obama just wearing like two types of suits. You know, he just doesn't want to think about it, doesn't want to think about what he's going to wear. He's got bigger problems. And then, you know, I'm from, I'm from Alabama, so we'll use an Alabama football one. Nick Saban eats the same thing every day, same thing every day for breakfast, same thing for lunch because he wants his mental energy and his time streamlined and he wants that available to think about other things. So I think that investing is one place where the rules beat discretion almost all the time. And that's one of the best ways around introducing negative emotion into the process. And uh, we've talked about in previous episodes, the importance of meta analysis studies and how, uh, how valid they are. You know, one of the things that uh, that fascinates me is is research by people like Philip Tetlock who talk about how wrong experts are. Can you can you uh, dive a little deeper on that topic? Yeah. So Tetlock uh, wrote a recent book that everyone should check out called Super Forecasting, where he refined some of his early studies. But Tetlock's early work, which really put him on the map, 
showed basically how bad expert judgment tended to be. And some of the parts that I like about his original work was he showed that the more popular a pundit was, uh, the less likely they were to be correct. So if we think about how a, a pundit or a talking head comes into notoriety, let's say in my world of finance and investing, oftentimes it's by making a dramatic call about sort of an unexpected event. So people who correctly called, uh, you know, 2008, 2009. If you watch the big short, uh, you know, some of those people that, that profited so dramatically from the housing crisis. So that's how someone gets famous for making a big improbable call. Well, probability being what it is, a lot of times those people tend to keep making large improbable calls and then are increasingly off in subsequent years. And you saw this. Uh, you saw this with John Paulson, the big hedge fund manager who made, uh, you know, the biggest trade of all time, m more or less, made a billion dollars, you know, shorting the housing market. And then in subsequent years, lost 36 percent when the market was up double digits. So, um, again, a lot of times people are perma bullish or perma bearish. They run into one. They run into sort of a nice opportunity where reality coincides with the thing they've been saying for five years. But then those those things tend to go away over time. So, yeah, Tetlock found that expert judgment wasn't all that great, found that the more famous an expert was, the worse they tended to be. And also found that most experts were very resistant to feedback about how to improve their processes and had lots of excuses like I was too early or my, this is my favorite, my prediction actually changed the course of history. You know, I would have been right, but because everyone listened to what I said, I actually moved the market or changed history, messed up the space-time continuum, as it were. It's such an important finding because people so often just defer to these experts or authorities, these talking heads, especially in the case of financial news many times, you know, and it's it's so critical to be aware of your own biases and and kind of understand your own thinking to the level where you can see, hey, like I'm clearly falling prey to some serious bias right now. Like those experts who are coming up with ridiculous justifications for why they're consistently totally off base. Yeah, and I think this is where we almost can't do this ourselves. You know, chapter two of the book is titled "You Can't Do This Alone." And we are programmed not to see our biases. I mean, again, like if we think about this optimism bias, that's in place for a very good reason. I mean, we're, we're happier people because we have this optimism bias. And, you know, if you think about entrepreneurship, if entrepreneurs correctly assess the probability of having a successful small business, no one would ever start a business, right? I mean, it's only because we have this over-optimism that we see stuff like entrepreneurship because the odds are crummy. So what, what we need to do is enlist an outside view. You know, we talk about the inside and the outside view. So, you know, run, run your idea by that friend of yours that's such a good friend that he or she can give you critical feedback and it won't damage the relationship. In the case of uh, finances, you know, I found, I talk in the book about how people who work with financial advisors tend to do two to 3% better per year than those who don't. And it has nothing to do, frankly, with the financial acumen of those advisors. It has to do with keeping, keeping you from doing stupid stuff. So having that trusted outside voice is, I think, the only way you can educate yourself about the basics of biases, but man, it's awfully hard to sort of white knuckle that you know, when you're in your own head. 
You know, the idea of not being stupid is something that Charlie Munger, who's one of my favorite thinkers and Warren Buffett's business partner, talks a lot about that both he and Buffett focus on is the idea of that they're not setting out to be the smartest or greatest investors of all time. They just want to eliminate bias from their thinking and try to be consistently not stupid. Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of defensive that, you know, first do no harm approach is the hallmark of a good investor. And, you know, when I look at my own process, the very first thing I do is screen out stocks for risk. I mean, that's the very first thing I do, because a lot of people don't see risk and return in finance and elsewhere in life as, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. So I am wholly on board with sort of this first do no harm first root out the bad stuff approach to money and to life. I think it's there's a lot of wisdom there. And like you said, those guys have gotten very rich off what is a decidedly unsexy approach of just kind of buying beaten down everyday staple stocks. And it's uh, it's worked out extremely well for them, clearly. Changing gears completely, you wrote a fascinating children's book called Everyone You Love Will Die. Tell me about that. So I have three kids. I have a seven-year-old, a soon-to-be three-year-old, and then a tiny baby, three months old. And so being a dad is like the greatest, you know, the, my favorite thing I do. But, you know, one thing I've learned with my seven-year-old is that, they, you know, they start to have tough questions. And so, you know, the other day she's asking me about, you know, God and like the nature of life and evil and, you know, why, why do bad things happen to good people and all, you know, all these different things that her little mind is, you know, beginning to take in. And so we had a, uh, had a friend pass away. And so one of the things that I found useful when talking to my kids about everything from the impermanence of life to marriage equality and everything in between is to to write poetry. And that's a way that I can kind of communicate with my kids. So I wrote this poem that's the basic gist of it was, you know, uh, there's there's lots of ways, <laughs> you know, everyone dies. So you're here today. And so am I. I mean, it sounds like a it sounds like a depressing title. Everyone you love will die. And it's, of course, meant to be provocative. But it is actually a sweet book in in practice. And the sort of the gist of it is, look, we're not here forever, so let's make the most of it and let's put first things first, put family first and do what matters first. And so I, I wrote this poem that sort of lists all these funny ways, you know, funny ways that people could die. And then at the end says, you know, so, hey, let's let's spend today together. So I wrote this poem. I put it on Facebook and a talented friend of mine liked it and sent me all these mocked up drawings of the different sort of humorous ways in which people die in the poem. And so she said, Hey, we should make this a book. And so I said, uh, okay, what the heck? So we put it on Kickstarter. Uh, it became the Kickstarter, you know, whatever editors pick of the day and it got funded in like 10 hours and we, uh, yeah, we printed a book. So it was very fun. It's one of, it's actually, you know, made no money off of it. It's, Obviously, hard to get a book called Everyone You Love Will Die published by a big publisher, <laughs> but um, it's like one of the professional things I'm most proud of. So thanks for bringing it up. You know, it's it's such an important lesson and, and something that I think it's easy to be kind of intellectually aware of, but really, really hard to sort of internalize and live, which is, you know, for somebody who's listening, how can they kind of snap out of the day-to-day, -day, you know, grind of their life and really embrace that lesson that you know, we only have a finite amount of time here. And 
you really have to live your life fully. Well, for me, it's funny. For me, I know that it's hard for most people to grasp. I I was born on the day that my grandfather died. I'm named after him. I look just like him. I never met him. He died two years to the day before I was born. So I feel like because of that, I've always had this sort of weirdly more acute sense of impermanence than most people. So for me, the thing, you know, the things that work are, are the following. You know, first of all, I try and really I read literature that considers the inevitability of that. And maybe that's a little heavy for most people, but I find that, you know, the inevitability of death does more to sort of energize my life than just about anything else. So that for me, you know, literature, art, movies that that speak to that and our fears around that are powerful. And then the other thing is, I don't know of a, I don't know what the sort of layperson's term for this is, but the the shrink term for it is an existential boundary experience. So to explain, you know, let's say you're driving, you're driving, and you know someone's texting, and they almost hit you, and you're like, holy crap! Like it was almost, you know, it was almost over for me there, and you have this moment, and you have this moment, and maybe it's half an hour, maybe it's ten minutes. You have this moment where death's a little closer to you, and maybe it's the death of a friend, right? You have this moment where everything comes into focus, and you say, look, if I had been hit by that car today, did I do enough? Like, did I tell the people I love that I love them? Did I spend enough time with my family? Did I prioritize work to the exclusion of things that were more important? And I think in those moments, you have to, they're fleeting, because you quickly get back to, you know, you quickly get back to life and busyness. But in those moments, I think you have to journal, catalog them, write them down, make commitments uh, when those moments happen to say, hey, I'm going to do things differently and, and have people hold you to those things. Because you're right. I mean, I think a lot of people, I think we live in a society that, that glorifies busyness in maladaptive and unproductive ways. And I think a lot of us, unfortunately, just stay busy until we until we pass away and we we leave a lot of life on the table. So I think it's an important thing to think about, like you said. What would an example be of, you know, one or two pieces of literature or movies or whatever that you think might examine that topic? I just finished The Dead, which is on the very on the nose, right? <laughs> I just finished The Dead, which is part of James Joyce's Dubliners uh, collection of short stories. I'd, I'd absolutely recommend that. There's a gentleman by the name of Irvin Yalom, who's a, a psychiatrist in California who writes uh, writes very, very beautifully about death and existential boundary experiences. So those are those are the two off the top of my head that I think I've read most recently that that put me in that frame of mind. But Yalom's, I mean, Yalom is sort of uh, in in my mind the Freud or the Jung of our day. He's probably the the best guy doing it right now. So he's who's who I'd point you to. In addition to you know all the Russian literature and other other people who are notoriously um, good at bumming you out. Well, we'll definitely include uh, both of the dead and a few of uh, Yalom's books in the show notes. Kind of broadening that question out, other than Laws of Wealth, which is a, is a great book about a lot of the topics we've talked about, goes much deeper into, into the research and is an incredibly useful tool. What would you recommend for people who kind of want to do a little bit more research or dig into some of these topics? Where would you suggest they start? So I, I get asked this question all the time. So at the risk of 
plugging my own thing. I, I came up with a reading list. So if people just Google Nocturne Capital um, reading list, I have sort of all of my favorite behavioral finance books, and I have them categorized by sort of the, the subcategory they speak to. I think the, some of the classics, though, just off the top of my head, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is about the best and most comprehensive thing out there. It's a little bit of a heavy read. I mean, it's a long book, but it's very fascinating. Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein's book Nudge is uh, about the best around in terms of speaking to sort of policy nudging and sort of pushing behavior in a good direction in everything from kids' school lunches to uh, smoking bans to safe driving. So if you're interested in that, um, and then in terms of the more financial side, I read some of the classics, you know, I read Ben Graham, you know, uh, and the, the Buffett letters and things like that. But I have a pretty comprehensive list of 15 or 20 at the, if you just look up Nocturne Capital reading list. Well, we'll definitely include the reading list in the show notes as well. Right. So for somebody who's listening here, what is one piece of kind of simple, actionable homework you would give them? to implement that they might be able to use to improve their personal finances? I think there's two. I'll double down and give you two there. So I think one would be to pick five of the books off of the list, which will be included in the show notes, and, and read five of those books. Uh, the, the interesting thing about investing is there's such a, a quickly diminishing marginal returns on investment knowledge. <laughs> like if you read three, four, or five books, you'll have 90% of all the knowledge you need to be a, a savvy investor. And you can read 100 more books to get the next 5 to 10% of the way. Just because I think investing uh, is simple but not easy. So I think that people would do very well to sort of educate themselves on the fundamentals of that. And I've tried to you know, give a good starter with those books. And then the second thing I would say is uh, get, get a financial advisor and look for someone who charges a reasonable fee, who emphasizes planning and hand-holding and behavioral coaching. Because the other stuff is honestly a dime a dozen. You can get, uh, anyone can put you in a well-diversified portfolio. That's not hard to do. Uh, what you really need is someone who's a good fit and is going to help you get that extra 3% a year that the research says you get when you work with an advisor by virtue of them helping you to make better decisions. So those are sort of the two, two easy pieces of advice. Educate yourself, you know, three to five books, and then find someone to help take you the rest of the way. And, and then read books about more interesting things like the impermanence of life. Where can people find you online? So Twitter at Daniel Crosby and uh, Nocturne Capital. That's Nocturne with an E like the music, nocturnecapital.com. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a fascinating discussion and, uh, and I've learned a tremendous amount and we've really enjoyed having you on here. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. And as a thank you to you for being awesome listeners, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.